Hello and welcome to Kane and Rinse Sound of Play Extra. <laughs> An extra interview for all of you. Every Wednesday in Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favorite pieces from the mini video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. I say that not knowing whether or not this goes out on a Wednesday. So (laughs) every Wednesday, that is still true. We do that every Wednesday and apparently also occasionally some other times whenever we damn well please is the message we're trying to get across. Joining me, Ryan Heyman, in this Sound of Play Extra are two guests, one familiar to you and one maybe not. Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> uh, the first you've heard on Sound of Play very recently with Leon, the uh, much acclaimed uh, longtime video game composer, George Sanger. Thank you. Hello, Ryan. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing wonderful. And somebody who introduces himself as simply the curator, Mr. Timothy Knox. Hi, Ryan. Good to be here. (laughs) Hi. So, sorry, George, I didn't mean to cut you off there. You were telling us before we were recording that you just woke up in an unusual fashion. Is that? (laughs) Oh, yes. I woke up in an unusual fashion. And I, uh, yes, I'm I'm taking a nap so that I'll be nice and perky Mm. and personable like I was in my last (laughs) interview. 
Uh-huh. And then I get a call from my daughter who says, well, could you send me your uh, itinerary for when you're going to come out, you know, uh, to visit me in Virginia tomorrow? I'm in I'm in California, so I got across the country on Friday. Mm. And it turns out that I booked my flight entirely wrong and <laughs> oh, I'm going to end up driving five hours in the middle of the night to get to where she is. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and my brain's all foggy from waking up from a nap. You're getting getting the other fat man. (laughs) Well, maybe the foggy brain just makes it look like everything's all wrong and maybe everything's okay. Let's say that that's true. I'm going with that. That's a good reality. I'm buying it. Good reality until we land. Yeah, let's take that. The uh, curator word that we've dropped a couple times here uh, now You've uh, briefly introduced me to what that means in this specific context, but uh, uh, if you want to kind of introduce to the audience, what is the role that you play professionally? It's interesting. I've never heard myself referred to as the curator. I prefer just Hmm. curator, uh, like a a proper noun. But yeah, no, I act as kind of a middleman between composers and corporations um, to rescue and release uh, master recordings from video game soundtracks that might otherwise never be heard. Hmm. Putt Putt Saves the Zoo is a really wonderful example because I had no idea what I was getting into when I when I started the project. But George and his team, Team Fat, uh, his his band, um, they composed a wonderful soundtrack for the game back in '95. Everything had to be really tightly compressed. There was this period of time right in the mid '90s between like the MIDI music of mm-hmm. of iMuse games like Secret of Monkey Island and well, Monkey Island Two, and yeah, where we were working with just MIDI chipsets and sound fonts into introducing studio recordings. A, a transition that George was extremely instrumental in. Pardon the pun. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but. When we started introducing those studio recordings, of course, CD-ROMs at only 700 megabytes could only contain so much. And Mm, along with all our graphics and uh, audio and, and, you know, every every other asset that needed to fit onto the media, um, everything, everything wound up extremely compressed. Backgrounds and sprites became incredibly dithered. um, Mm -hmm. And the music was crunched down from full, nicely recorded potentially 48 kilohertz studio recordings to uh, mono, hissy, kind of distorted just to fit in there. And a lot of us can recognize that listening to music from that time. It's just kind of, we just take it for granted. That's just how music of games at the time sounded. It sounds kind of nice. But then to hear a master recording right next to it of the same song, the same composition, is just marvelous. And you start to realize, oh my God, this was people with guitars in front of a mic, you know, in a booth or what have you. So I had that experience about almost four years ago. I heard a sample of the famous song, Welcome to the Zoo um, Mm, from Putt Putt Saves the Zoo on George's website. I think I was just browsing around looking at composers' websites who I knew and was wondering, you know, what they were up to. And I heard this and I went, oh my God, I'd never considered master recordings would exist from any of this stuff. So that's led me to a lot of other places. One of the big things with, with Puppet Saves Zoo is he sent me over. We got in touch and got to be good friends. And I said, look, this is what I want to do. I want to put this out in the world. And he sent me 12 and a half hours of digital audio tape recordings. Wow. <laughs> Trying to scare him off. <laughs> yeah. It was the wrong thing to do. <laughs> it got me just intrigued. The first thing he told me to do, actually, 
was get in touch with Putt Putt Golf. He said, uh, hey, look, mm-hmm. go talk to Putt Putt Golf. See about our naming rights. If this is really what you want to do, that's where you need to start. And I said, ah, I could barely drink at the time. I was, I was a much younger <laughs> man. Uh, but George, that's boring. And he basically said, yeah, that's the point. Like, go, go do something boring. I want to see that you're actually dedicated to doing mm. this above board. And then we'll see about, you know, sharing the music. And so I spent a couple months on the phone uh, with David Callahan. CEO of Putt Putt Golf. It's a long phone call. Your phone bill that month must have been terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it was actually just a few very short conversations uh, <laughs> over the course of like, yeah, three months or so. Hmm. And he wound up directing us over to the actual licensors, the holders of the Putt Putt intellectual property. But yeah, anyway, then he sent me over all this, all this audio and I spent, it was probably about five months just sorting it and figuring out, okay, wait a minute, what, what goes where, what actually is from the game. What's duplicate? There was a lot of duplicate material. The total amount of audio that actually like is unique in that collection was about four hours, a little over four hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's about one third of, of what I received. But yeah, cross-referencing it with all these handwritten notes. As a curator, George is a really <laughs> fascinating person uh, and very, very helpful <laughs> because George was really forward thinking in the early 90s, mid 90s, um, when he was doing what he was doing. He he wanted to be taken seriously. He wanted to form the Beatles of game music. Mm. Uh, he wanted to do everything that he was doing very legally and very, very above board, which simply means it was well accounted for. Mm-hmm. So he kept documentation and he also made every effort to retain the rights, the actual ownership of the music he composed for most of his projects including Puppet Saves the Zoo. And that's quite unique. That's almost unheard of at the time. Most people were, they were composing for games as a work for hire contract, which means they, you know, wrote the music, sent it off and would never see it again. And he negotiated royalties. He negotiated ownership. So we were able to do a lot of things that otherwise I would get in touch with a composer, someone like Jerry Martin, who was a lead composer for the first The Sims. He's an amazing guy. He and I have chatted. He has no ownership over his music. EA, Electronic Arts, owns all his stuff. So really, all the logistics of releasing those recordings are on the side of EA. George, on the other hand, is a real relevant part of the conversation when it comes to getting Putt-Putt music out. Putt-Putt saves the zoo that the kind of, not the theme song necessarily, but I think it's a, a striking moment in the game that anyone who has played the game before will remember. The song of the topiary creatures as they introduce themselves uh, right outside the zoo there. The Welcome to the Zoo song, uh, which we heard in the uh, intro to uh, George's previous interview on Sound of Play, I immediately recognized that song and had like a little a little heart <laughs> flutter because it was one of those moments where, you know, I felt like I was the like the only one in the world who remembered that, mm. which obviously not true. But, you know, it's just, I played it so long ago in sure. my childhood and I played it so much and I was so familiar with the song that I was kind of surprised to hear it like again. And it was mm-hmm. like a real, a real, wonderful moment. <laughs> I'm quite familiar with that process. Mm. I, uh, uh, <laughs> which, which is part of why it's so interesting, you know, in such a, because music is such a method of communication. It's a language unto itself. And a lot of the, you asked me to put together a little selection of music to play mm-hmm. here in, in the podcast. And a lot of it demonstrates to me how melody is a form of communication. A few of the selections I put together, like the the next track, which I called Parade Car Town by Tom McMail, is uh, a selection from Putt Putt Joins the Parade, 
the very first Putt-Putt game in 1992. And it's just a lovely, simple little melody. And then George, I don't know if he remembers this, but George then brought it back. I don't know if he was asked to. So the next track I, I selected to play after that is George's, one of George's two renditions of that same melody. Yeah, I'm just fascinated by how, okay, so that was a, a kind of communication between two composers, even if they never actually spoke to each other. George listened to Tom's work, said, okay, how can I adapt this? How can I kind of make it my own? And communicate, potentially, to anyone who's listening in, as playing, you know, in playing the game, would recognize this melody. This might not be necessary to say, but to give some introduction for the listeners who are not familiar with this series or the uh, the work of Humongous Entertainment, Putt-Putt was a little purple car protagonist, and he would find himself in all sorts of adventures in in time travel and going to the moon, going to uh, just join the, the town parade and, and such uh, in a kind of traditional point-and-click adventure style gameplay, but it was aimed... Uh, primarily towards kids. Uh, at least that was the age that I played it. And it mm-hmm. felt age appropriate for me at the time. So uh, that's my experience. But uh, one of the the point I wanted to highlight is that a lot of the time, a lot of media that's pointed towards children is kind of dismissed as being like, you don't need to put as much thought into this work aimed towards children as you would towards, you know, the sophisticated work that mm. adults read and, and consume. But like really to hear these, these, ideas of musical motifs persisting through the series and evolution of musical ideas. And of course, the humongous entertainment games were led by Ron Gilbert of uh, Monkey Island fame, who was famous for being uh, very meticulous in the detail and uh, care and passion that he put into all of his works. And so it's it's really no surprise there. But, uh, you know, just I, I love to kind of take every opportunity I can to try to disprove all of the negative stereotypes that people have about children's entertainment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was working with Joe McDermott, one of the members of Team Fat, Joe, Kevin Phelan, and Dave Covet as the composers. And uh, the reason that I cultivated a friendship with Joe a few years earlier and brought him into the team is because he did children's music and he did it really seriously. We uh, Actually, I produced a children's music album with him, which in which we tried... You know, that was where I tried to put into practice hmm. all my fantasies, all my ideas about how good music could be. It's where I pretended I was a Beatle for the mm-hmm. first time. Yeah. You know, it was where I really you know, tried to bring all the quality that I could uh, to the table. And that was always our our principle moving forward to fit really well with what Humongous was doing as well. On Putt Moon, what you'll hear is not just my arrangement, but it's also being played Live to MIDI, and I don't think that had been done before. Oh. Uh, but I had my brother playing MIDI drums, Dave Sanger, and he's a Grammy-winning uh, drummer. You know, he's got about seven Grammys now playing with a sleep at the wheel. The bass player I had play keyboard bass, so that was a little bit of a cheat. So I had a second keyboard set up, <laughs> and he was playing bass. But he's a bass player, and I'm sorry I can't remember his name. We'll look it up, and we'll get it. We'll fit it into the credits somehow. Nick Connolly? Uh, I, I think you're right. But the piano player is so talented and top-notch that it's just beyond remarkable. His name's Floyd Domino, and he is such a phenomenal player that actually the score, the original Pitt Orchestra, was written for Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. The music for that, I'm sorry, I said the actual Pitt Orchestra, I mean the, the actual orca- the, 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 the charts, were written around Floyd Domino's style of playing piano. 
So when the guy who wrote that started putting on the play on Broadway, he called Floyd's boss in Asleep at the Wheel, Ray Benson, and said, do you know anybody who plays piano like Floyd Domino <laughs> for, for our pit orchestra for this Broadway debut of this play, of this musical? And Ray said, well, Floyd ain't doing nothing right now. So Floyd <laughs> got to go out to New York and play in a Broadway premiere that was written around his style of playing. And wow. I say that's a cushy gig if you can get it. <laughs> <laughs> so that, But that's the kind of quality that we're trying to give you. So you'll hear some mm, yeah. that kind of lazy barrel house playing. Nobody does it like Floyd. Mm. And, and I think that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thankful we had the original melody to work with it was beautiful but that group of musicians really you know i was trying to give the kids something that they could that would inspire them that would swell their hearts kids are a fun audience because they're coming in with fewer expectations than adults exactly. so they're really open to more different types of experiences yeah 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 and you can, you can give them you can give them the highest quality stuff and and it will find a way into them that it mm. might not with an adult the band that backed up mr rogers is a live jazz band and uh Hey, Timothy, what are the names hmm. of the guys in that? <laughs> <laughs> I, that one I don't know. I haven't. The curator hasn't worked on that project yet. There is an episode where where Mr. Rogers walks off the set and you see the the band, and they are top 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 notch jazz cats. Hmm. You know, just give the kids all the quality. I mean, look at the Disney movies or look at the Disney uh, cartoons. Yeah. It's as yeah. good as entertainment gets. I always really respected hmm. uh, Mr. Rogers for uh, taking on the the live band that even working on a public broadcasting budget, uh, you know, obviously you could see from a lot of his sets and a lot of the, you know, he, he would talk to people that he knew in real life and he would go to places that were convenient to shoot and stuff. Like he was operating on a smaller budget than most major TV shows, but still prioritizing bringing in like a, a live band full of very talented musicians. Really cool. Before it's completely out of our mind, I want to <laughs> Uh, not not that we are out of our minds, out but before mind. the <laughs> before this first track that we heard coming into the podcast here is out of our uh, ears, let's say. I, I wanted to get some history on this particular one. This is called Mamba Oo Elephant. It's composed by Joe McDermott for Putt Putt Saves the Zoo. And uh, Timothy, you were saying beforehand that this song was uh, not even featured in the game that it was written for? No, no, it's a it's a beautifully elaborate production. One of my favorite pieces from the entire game, even though, no, it's never been heard as far as I know outside of the offices of Humongous Entertainment or Team Fat itself. And it is, it's, it's by Joe. And I feel like it really exemplifies his style and how he approached non-lyrical mm. stuff. Because a lot of what he does now, Joe um, is still very active as a children's musician playing for children in Texas. But a lot of what he does now is lyrical, which is, you know, beautiful in its own way. But for the game, of course, they needed stuff with without words uh obvious words to distract and it's mm -hmm. it has that 90s lullaby quality which which mm -hmm. makes it sound for me i'm 24 sounds very nostalgic in in this very deep way um because it echoes other music i was listening to on tapes and stuff at the time that's meant to lull a child to sleep on these themes uh, i'm actually going to read a, a couple words by george about respecting children and their their um consumption of entertainment he says here in an article for gama sutra in 2001 audio especially game audio is a powerful weapon when used properly it has the power to involve immerse elevate and reward it has the power to excite 
It can make an artificial world appear to be deeper, older, and much more complex and complete than it actually is. But when misused, audio reveals its most awesome and deadly power. The power to annoy. <laughs> now add to this dire situation the, the multipliers that are unique to kids' games. For some reason, somebody has decided that any game created for somebody under the age of nine will have the following audio characteristics. The compositions will be more repetitive than those in adults' games. The tones will be pedestrian. The tunes will be shorter and simpler than even normal game music. The tunes will all be in the same key, C major. Half the tunes will be public domain favorites, such as Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And characters will yell in high, squeaky voices the following phrases. Good job. Very good. Try again. Not quite. Hey, you're good at this. Great job. Hey, you're good at this. Great job. Why? Because it's easy. Because people think kids don't notice these things. Because people think kids actually like these things. But that's insane. None of them is necessary or desirable ever. Kids like good music, just like you and me. They get bored. And even if they didn't, it doesn't matter because you're never going to drive a kid crazy with good audio. George, you still stand by that? Wow, man. I, I just like, let me wipe this tear away from my eye. <laughs> I'm about 100%. I mean, when I was a kid, I, we used to gather around. We used to gather around the wax cylinder recorder and the piano rolls. We didn't have a player piano, just player piano rolls. And we gather around them. And, 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 you know, we listened to Alan Sherman and the Beatles and Disney soundtracks. And hmm. those people didn't hold back. Now, that's no. top-notch music. And, and that's where I picked up my subconscious chops. You know, a lot of times when I'd sit down to compose something for a game, I would think, well, what song do I really like? You know, what groove do I really like? And I would tap back into my childhood and into the things that really got me psyched up. Uh, speaking of player pianos, uh, this next track that we're going to be featuring from another of the Putt-Putt games, you mentioned the first Putt-Putt game, is a jaunty little kind of ragtime-ish number almost. Uh, do you want to introduce us to Parade Cartown? Well, first, out of four Spectatomic Mail, uh, I have no idea if that's the actual name because I haven't had a time to chat with him yet. This is a... A particular sound font version because it was all MIDI at the time. This is played through a Roland MT32, I think Mark II sound card, and I really loved the way it sounded. It's really the first tune we hear as we enter the game, and it seems to really represent Putt Putt himself. George, do you remember any of the notes kind of Ron gave you at the time when you came into Moon about, because this is the only melody he asked you to bring back. Do you remember anything he might have said about it or like why you were asked to use it again? He had the understanding that, you know, the thematic continuity is, is important. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he wanted to bring something, you know, a little branding for Putt-Putt, you know, and, and this was the, the closest to Putt-Putt's theme music that Parade offered. And he thought, well, you know, if Putt-Putt's got sort of a theme and, and we go into the next game with the same theme, that's a good thing. Yeah, this piece of music, of, of course, it's uh, very jaunty. It's very upbeat. But I feel like as it kind of um, steps down towards the end of each of those kind of main refrains, it's... Uh, and I might not be using the correct musical language. That is not where my training lies. <laughs> no <laughs> problem. Anyways, as long as I communicate the message. Uh, but <laughs> I, I feel like there are some uh, notes of like melancholy in the harmonies as well. It's kind sure. of like unexpected. It kind of creeps up on you. I wasn't expecting to hear that, but I really like that 
as yeah. a way of kind of demonstrating that Putt Putt is not only just this kind of happy, friendly character, but he's also, for all intents and purposes, like he lives alone in his own place and <laughs> he's living life himself. And so, you know, there's some element of challenge and of a life, not life weariness, but a life experience that, yes, <laughs> that the yes. little car has gone through. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I agree. Anyways, this is uh, Parade Car Town by Tom McMail. I just snuck off to my headphones while you guys were talking. Mm. <laughs> and I got to listen to Moon Car Town. And I realized all that great credit that I gave to those great musicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I played this one. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you do. You, you set up the expectations and then you reveal. It's the prestige. <laughs> be really something. No, no, I, I, George, I know, I, I know you had the whole team involved for a lot of it. But no, I, I know that that selection, it sounds like you. Ryan, I, I loved I love what you said about the um, sort of world weariness. I feel like I feel like the um, that melody. I mean, I wouldn't have felt comfortable sharing this on my own, um, but mm-hmm. um, you paved the way. That that melody and the way it's performed does suggest sort of a world where obviously I don't mean this fully literally, but sort of the vibe of Putt Putt being kind of like a, a plucky orphan in mm, yeah, in sort yeah. of a Leave It to Beaver kind of world uh the whole joins the parade especially has this vibe and feeling the cars are kind of designed after like cars of the 50s Mm -hmm. and early 60s and it has this vibrant quality that that i relate to something like a a colorized yeah leave it to beaver or uh the andy griffith show Mm, or even uh kind of the uniforms of star trek um the original series uh and yeah there is this sense that he's this really helpful person who cares so much about everyone else in part because he doesn't have a family of his own that he you know needs to care for at home and he, he does literally have this home by himself and he winds up getting a puppy which be, is his mm-hmm. companion for the 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 rest of the games as we see them and without further ado i'd love to hear george's rendition of the same theme putt putt goes to the moon is probably one of the first video games that i had ever played before i, mm. I remember that I used to, uh, when I was living up in uh, British Columbia, I used to go off to the local public library and check out one of their computers for an hour or however long they would let a unaccompanied child sit there and <laughs> just play video games. And I would, uh, I would play this, I would play Putt Putt Saves the Zoo, mm. and I would play some like magic school bus type uh, kind of point and clicks as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just remember this feeling of kind of limitless potential to these worlds. And of Mm -hmm. course it's very traditional 2d point and click adventure. 
all the hand-drawn backgrounds and everything was single screen frames and everything. But the Humongous Entertainment games did a wonderful job of just giving you little incidental actions that you can do while you're clicking around the screen, trying to figure out what to do next or anything. Almost everything you click on will play some sort of funny little animation. Mm -hmm. And since it isn't necessarily important to progress through the, the, the game, it always felt like you were finding something uh, kind of secret or, or kind of out of the way. And it would build out this world a lot more than uh, if those hadn't been there. And so I was endlessly entertained <laughs> by the uh, early Putt-Putt games. I was a big fan of those. There's nothing more, you know, I mean, they say that there's only one story and it gets told over and over again. And, mm-hmm. and the best model for it is is usually the Odyssey. And there's nothing closer to the Odyssey. I mean, what characterizes the hero's tale. Yeah. The hero starts at home and he goes off somewhere and he comes back to tell about it. And, uh, you know, what's what's more like that than Putt-Putt going off to the moon? <laughs> exactly. And, 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 I mean, when you're up drifting in space, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. And there mm-hmm. I used the compositional technique of the whole tone scale. Ah. <laughs> Imply a lack of direction because the half steps are missing, which usually provide the uh, anchor of uh, tonality. We escape. We escape the uh, tyranny of the diatonic <laughs> scale in, in, that, in that manner. You are putting on the voice, but I do find this kind of thing really interesting. <laughs> uh, you know, that was actually the first time I ever used a, a whole tone scale, and I had been told in music class that it gives a sort of directionlessness, and mm. uh, it certainly did. Uh, I just wanted it zipped up. You know, I wanted it zippy to keep the motion going. You know, oh, I wanted yeah. to you ba da ba dee ba da ba do When the melody is, you know... In any gap where there's a da da, if there's a, a weight, I altered the backing thing to make sure that there was motion in the gap. Mm-hmm. So there's always something going scuba doo You know, nobody yeah. ever leaves. If there's if there's too much of a gap, the motion stops. Yeah. So I like to trade, and you'll see that in a lot of my the eight bit stuff that I did. It, it, it's uh, Keep the motion going. If the melody isn't hitting one of the major beats, then the accompaniment usually is. And that really keeps it rolling. It's an interesting goal to set because I always think of point and click adventure games as being kind of slow meditative experiences. A lot of time just kind of scanning the screen and everything. So what was it about? Was it the the character and his kind of personality that made you want to step up the, the motion of the track? I think I just wanted to be classy. <laughs> I think I just wanted it to feel very, very, very musical and interesting and, and, and up. And that fits that cheerful personality. But it's also got sophistication. You know, if, you, if you're going, do ba da ba ba da ba da you know, I want to hear Let us listen to Moon Cartown 2 by our friend George here. <laughs>
Papa Goes to the Moon, that's an interesting game because whereas in the first game, he's going out into his village trying to help people out and, you know, mm -hmm. mow their lawns and everything. In mm -hmm. this game, he accidentally winds up on the moon because he was, I guess, playing in a fireworks factory. If exactly. I remember that correctly. Well done, Ryan. <laughs> was he supposed to be working he, um, sure. either way that doesn't seem like a safe profession for a child <laughs> <laughs> yeah well he went he went to go see mr firebird but i don't yes. know exactly what he was doing in there my goodness i feel a little out of sorts all of a sudden you could build different fireworks right and they would blow up yeah. different. it feels irresponsible to to invite him into the fireworks factory and not closely supervise everything he's doing. Humongous Entertainment was was a small team of, of wonderfully creative and very interesting people. One employee shared, I forget who this was. She said, imagine college, only you're at a game company and they give you free reign to do an adventure game. Come up with a story and characters and throw in all kinds of inside jokes. That was humongous. It was fantastic. Oh, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> she, they, they, they had a lot of fun together. And you, you mentioned, oh man, it seems dangerous for, for Putt Putt to have been in this fireworks factory. There was a lot of things that were coded into several of the games that, that never saw the light of day. Mm. Um, and one of them was, you, Ryan, you remember on Putt Putt's dashboard, there was a radio you could click. Yeah. For, yeah. yeah. So there are a few hidden um, that were recorded and even programmed in, but then uh, coded out to make sure you can get to them, um, where the radio announcer is reporting on the litigation against uh, Mr. Firebird uh, for child endangerment and for what occurred, what occurred oh, to Putt Putt. Yeah. <laughs> the archive where, where uh, you know, all my bins of uh, stuff that, that the that the companies sent me over mm -hmm. the years ended up. So, so all I've got there are bins and bins and bins of stuff at the uh, university of Texas center for American history in the George Sanger papers. But, mm -hmm. uh, if you, if you hit the, uh, hit the bin of, uh, of Papa goes to the moon and, and Papa saves a zoo, you get these videotapes of, of how it was going to turn out. They temp videotapes. And, uh, Oh my gosh, they had <laughs> subtitles, you know, they hadn't dubbed it yet. But they sure. just kind of typed in whatever it was that they sort of were feeling at the time. Uh -huh, and, yeah, uh, they did not. They did not keep it politically correct. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, they were they were they were young people. It was kind of the wild west, and it's. I appreciate that because at the same time, you know, what they came out with was was very family friendly. It was just lovely. Mm -hmm. There was nothing mean spirited about it. I figured this is as good a time to mention as any. Um, I got to spend time with, for Puppet Saves the Zoo, the definitive soundtrack as the project came to be known. I kind of went all out. I It was it was four years, almost four, I guess it was more like three and a half of, of exploration for me because I hadn't really done stuff like this before. And I got to have a lot of conversations with artists who previously worked at Humongous. I, and I wound up spending a solid day with Jason Ellefson, the original voice of Putt-Putt, mm. and the absolutely wonderful uh, Laurie Arnold, who was the writer, director, and co-designer of the entire Putt-Putt series. You know, she wrote every word Putt-Putt ever spoke. And she spent time in the studio uh, with nine-year-old Jason Ellefson directing him. And as Jason pointed out when we were together, he said, you know, Laurie, you, you were basically Putt-Putt just as much as I was. You know, I, I said the words. I was the you know, young boy, but but you gave me the delivery. You you knew what Putt Putt's character was. 
I had them out. Um, I flew, Lori still lives in the vicinity of Seattle, but I flew uh, Jason out. He was living in Vegas at the time. We got in touch. Um, I got in touch with his manager who coincidentally also manages Shaquille O'Neal. Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> and <laughs> a little interesting six degrees there. And uh, we flew him out to Seattle to record in the exact same studio he recorded in as a child. The same room, actually. Oh, wow. And we recorded a promotional material for the album. Uh, which we still haven't used yet because the album's kind of on hiatus at the moment. But we recorded two episodes of the popular uh, YouTube show, Did You Know Gaming? Mm-hmm. Um, which I wrote and I'm co-producing two episodes for. With Jason, you know, reading trivia about Putt-Putt and Humongous Entertainment. And he was just so fantastic to spend time with. And it was so interesting to hear his stories. He auditioned for the role with a 102 degree fever. Um, (laughs) He he was, yeah. Speaking of child endangerment. (laughs) No, it was all his choice because he was with his mom and his mom spent the day with us as well. And so I got to meet her and chat with her and I recorded an interview with material with them and they were just just incredibly lovely people. You know, you Mm. hear it was such a unique situation because Humongous Ron, especially, um, went Mm -hmm. all out uh, casting a child for a the role of a child character is just so much more difficult than it is worth to so many people mm-hmm. you know that's why all the powerpuff girls are voiced by adults that's right. why you know you get professional voice actors for this because adults are so much easier to direct you don't have to work around their school schedules you don't have to work around low blood sugar you know in the same way <laughs> and ron uh-huh. said no this is uh, i believe it was ron who made the decision no this is this is a child i wanted to appeal to children so we're going to get a kid and Jason was a young actor working at the Seattle Children's Theater at the time. He just loved making believe. He loved, he was good at it. And yeah, they had the audition. I forget if it was, it was his director or coach, I believe, at the Seattle Children's Theater who Hmm. knew Lori or saw the ad by Humongous and anyway, got them in touch. And yeah, he was in the back of the car and apparently he he said to his mom, you know, mom, really not feeling good. And Jan said, uh, you know, you don't have to do this. You know, (laughs) it's totally fine. We can go home, but I don't think we can reschedule it for another day. Um, you know, I think this is, this is really our one opportunity if this is something you want to do. And so Jason said, ah, okay, sure. All right, let's go. <laughs> what you hear in Putt-Putt's enthusiasm and his earnestness and his helpfulness, that's all Jason. Like Jason, it was a really happy kid then. He's still a happy young man now. He's in his early thirties. Uh, it was such a pleasure to spend time with him because all that character was still there. I mean, just look at the fact that, you know, he was paid, but he still took all this time out of his out of his life and said, yeah, sure, I'll come in and just chat with you about this thing I did as a kid and record whatever you want. And uh, he was great. We recorded we also recorded for an animated short film. I um, I wrote planned to be produced to it's like a minute long to to be produced to promote the Puppet Saves Zoo definitive soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And it depicts this sort of older brother character voiced by Jason, modeled after Putt-Putt, returning to the Cartown Zoo, you know, 20 years after Putt-Putt saved it. And he, he rolls up and is like, wow, you know, it's, it's bigger than I expected. And Jason's just got, he's got a really good voice. And it was, it was so much fun to direct. And, and uh, Lori and I <laughs> co-directed that together. And Lori actually got to co-write it because I had written it and then Lori looked it over. I didn't ex- know she was going to be in the studio with us all day until like that morning. And she was like, ah, you know, I don't think he would say this. And I was like, please, you know, write it however you want. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. So she, 
she rewrote it on the fly and and you know directed him and i have video footage of a lot of that and um Ryan, the other thing we did together was we played through Putt Putt Saves the Zoo. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> uh, together and recorded like director's commentary over it. Oh, cool. We had Lori, we had Jason, and we had Tom McGurk, mm-hmm. who was an audio en- was the audio engineer on Joins the Parade, Goes to the Moon, Saves the Zoo, and probably travels through time. And he was also composer for games like Spy Fox 2, Freddy Fish 2, Spy Fox 3, and several of the backyard sports titles that were also produced by Humongous. And now he co-owns Bad Animals, the studio where they once recorded, along with Mike McAuliffe, who was the voice of Luther in the Freddy Fish games. Okay, yeah. He was also he was also the voice of Slippy Toad in Star Fox Assault. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, and you can hear it. He's a great guy. It was really fun to chat with him. <laughs> Um, yeah, I got to hear Luther say the F word in front of me, which was, which was <laughs> hilarious. But anyway, Tom joined us to play through Puppet Saves the Zoo because he was audio engineer on it. And he, we just had so much fun, you know, sharing memories mm-hmm. of like, oh, just all throughout, all, all three of them. And, but I remember Tom <laughs> just gaping at me at one point. And I, I when we were done, I asked him, well, you know, what, what was the deal? And he said, you were playing the game without looking at the screen because I, I i played it through you know hmm. and i said well yeah that's because i've played it like two thousand times for work <laughs> alone in the last like two years you know I've, i could probably play it with, with my eyes closed entirely actually yeah, i'm pretty dang sure I could. it's not newsy for a point and click yeah no i could, but like i said when you've <laughs> played the dude i've played it so many times <laughs> there's your promotional youtube video there timothy oh absolutely yeah, there yeah. you go. Just get on a AGDQ or something. Oh, that's a good idea. That's good. actually there's a there's a there is a playthrough. Shout out! I can't remember the username, but a, a guy uh, did a speed run of Saves the Zoo, skipping every cinematic, and you hear him like breathlessly clicking for about forty seconds huh. uh, before he makes the world record, and then he just sort of breathes this big sigh of relief. Uh, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's very funny. The most recent that I played it was back in college. I, I went through it again and found myself again frustrated that I couldn't melt the snow with my hot chocolate. Ryan, no, that's fascinating. I never thought about that. That's interesting. The one the one that really caused me trouble as a kid was the two-part puzzle of mm-hmm. uh, Maasai, Saving the Giraffe, where you need to push the rock first so that you can go back around and lower the drawbridge. I think as a five, six-year-old, I, I don't know if I was really able to figure that out. My sister's favorite was uh, Travels Through Time, which has a just marvelous soundtrack. So different from George's and Team Fat's take on the whole thing. But it's very atmospheric. It's by Julian Soule, Jeremy's brother. Jeremy, of course, would go on to compose for The Elder Scrolls, Skyrim, etc. And he approached Travels Through Time with such a such a unique sensibility, where it's like it's very atmospheric. And he composed a little theme uh, similar to George's Topiary Creatures, because it's a sing-along that happens at the beginning of the game. It's probably a directive by Ron, given how popular Welcome was. And then he, that, that motif repeats throughout the game, and it's, it's good stuff. I want to say about Goes to the Moon with George, I was very excited. George and I just had a call like a couple days ago where I was asking him about master recordings for Goes to the Moon, because I would freaking love to, to work on that. And he mm. explained that, yes, DAT recordings do exist, which means... They mastered, Team Fat mastered their own definitive synth version Mm. before it was, or it was either before it was dumped down to MIDI for the initial DOS release, 
or when Goes to the Moon was released for Windows later on and required a digital audio soundtrack. Mm. George mastered his own using MIDI's on, on his end. And then it was crunch, you know, like basically exported to wave. It was it was put out as as digital audio and then crunched down to mono in the same way that Zoo was. Mm, So there's this wonderful definitive soundtrack version of Goes to the Moon that is out there someplace. Yeah, exactly. We think it's in we think it's in Texas. And I I plan to go find it because that's that's one I'd really, really love to work on. Treasure hunt through Texas to find Texas is just step into this little. Fireworks factory, Timothy. <laughs> oh, there you go. There we go. I could wind up a whole celestial body away. That, that could be inconvenient. <laughs> so the the tracks that we've heard so far have all been putt putt, and we've been uh, we've been chatting humongous entertainment stuff for a long time now. Uh, but I've noticed that the rest of the tracks that you've put forward for this the show are uh, not in that same wheelhouse. Of course, we have some familiar composers here and some uh, very popular games as well but are these soundtracks that you've had a role in recovering or anything like that or are you just fans of the music no these are these are each ones that have very significant personal significance to me the next one up uh, dearly beloved by by yoko shimamura basically anyone who knows me well has probably heard it because <laughs> i've i've listened to it thousands upon thousands of times throughout my my growing up process the first Kingdom Hearts came out in 2002. The rendition I have for you is from Kingdom Hearts 2. Each of the tracks I've selected sort of communicates or demonstrates something about, again, melody as a, as a method of communication. Mm-hmm. And how much curator for me is about tracking, documenting, and sharing the evolution of melody. So Dearly Beloved, for instance, is this wonderful, gorgeous theme tune written by Yoko Shimomura uh, for the first Kingdom Hearts. Kingdom Hearts now has like, I don't know, something like a dozen games in the series, counting all the these these kind of offshoots. Although you never know it, judging by the uh, the numbers that they append to them. Exactly, exactly. We're very, very excited about Kingdom Hearts 3 potentially <laughs> coming out next year. And really, I think there's over a dozen already. I, I could be wrong. The previous one was like numbered in the hundreds or something like that. So it's very unpredictable. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah, oh, there was 358 over two days. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's, that's a, Yeah. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but each title screen starts with uh, a new orchestration or a new interpretation by the same composer mm. of this same tune. And I I absolutely love that. I'll put on playlists of just this tune morphing through time as mm. the composer, as she wanted to express something slightly different through it. Uh, there's one that sort of transforms into this kind of ballroom dance. There are others mm. that are more contemplative or slightly more sinister or more melancholy or more um, victorious. And the versatility of a single simple melody mm-hmm. continues to fascinate me in part because I'm not really a musician. I'm, I'm just not, I'm not a composer in and of myself. I've dabbled, mm-hmm. but I find it so magical and very much akin to how a limited color palette the, the same colors can produce so many different striking paintings that can live in your memory for the rest of your life. So yeah, Dearly Beloved is, is without it, I, I don't know if Curator would exist because it, it was so profoundly inspiring to me for, for so long. And I still listen to it very often, especially as I work. Well, let us listen to Dearly Beloved from Kingdom Hearts 2.
Now, this next name is uh, one that is uh, frequently floating around the indie game space, especially. Mm. Although I'm pretty sure he's worked his way into uh, some more kind of industry AAA titles, mm. you know, whatever that distinction means these days. <laughs> uh, but he's kind of a friend to everyone, as yeah. I have met people in the video game industry. Yeah, he's, he's a friend of mine as well, Jim Guthrie. And the track I've selected in particular is... Uh, the Light in Us All, which is the wonderful, just magnificent theme tune from uh, Planet Coaster by Frontier Developments. And Planet Coaster is a business management sim as well as, you know, building simulator where you create mm-hmm. your own theme park. Very much in the vein of and by the people who were originally behind uh, Roller Coaster Tycoon 3. They're a British studio and they were just something in them decided, hey, we really want to get this organic folksy sound for 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 this production which to me is not intuitive like that's Hmm. i i absolutely love the combination that it resulted in but to me it's 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 almost kind of wes anderson e sounding um very and very kind of inspirational indie folk uh feels very mumford and sons or something like that there you go yes exactly exactly like, oh, let's do that for our, our roller coaster building game. That's not <laughs> obvious to me. Mm. And, and yet it's, it's truly movingly magnificent. And I, I love the creative courage that implies. I see it as creative courage because, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think they kind of take it for granted. But Jim, I included him in this playlist because I reached out to Jim for Puppet Saves the Zoo, actually. George hasn't been able to track everything I've been doing with it. But the thought I had was... was we wound up in restoring the master recordings from Save the Zoo. There were four tracks that I was missing. They play in the Penguin Boombox. Ryan, do you remember that in, in Arctic Land? Uh, I have a vague memory that it had happened, but none of the specifics. Sure, of course, of course. It was just, it, these. you meet these penguins, they have a boombox. You click it and it plays <laughs> three different tunes, all written by the same person who was, you know, kind of a, a sub under George, kind of, well, yeah, Rhett Mathis, wonderful guy. And I got in touch with Rhett to try to restore those and add them to our soundtrack. He sent me over the original floppy on which the middies were stored and I sent them into a lab and we worked for like eight months and tried to get them. Couldn't. It was, it was heartbreaking. And I thought, okay, all right, fine. Maybe what I'll do is reach out to people in the particularly indie game space mm-hmm. to reinterpret some of those as, you know, transformative new works mm. uh, for the definitive soundtrack, you know, in, in their place, uh, add in some new stuff. So Jim actually is not one of the Penguin Boombox people. He is a tune from the Secret Cove. It is a, a weird little location in Puppet Saves the Zoo. Do you remember, Ryan, um, using the the rapids in Jungle Land? Yes. Yeah. Okay. You get on a raft, a little, uh, like, well, yeah, log raft kind of thing. Drift through, you know, all these all these waterfalls and everything. If you, if you click in the right sequence, if you go down the right holes, mm-hmm. you wind up in this place I call the Secret Cove, which is this place where, in really creepily, nothing is clickable. You can't, there's no, there's no click points in the trees or anything. You can only leave. But when you get there, it plays a kind of parody or, or near miss version of the, (laughs) of the dueling banjos tune popularized (laughs) by Deliverance. That's an interesting choice. Are you you saying Jim, Jim Guthrie played that? No, no. I know that's all by Rhett Mathis. I, I was like, okay, it's just this little, like, I don't know, six note 
thing that repeats itself. It's a it's a banjo, then a guitar, kind of, and they just echo off into the distance before mm. they get all quiet, and you have to leave the screen. And it's really creepy. <laughs> I guess the <laughs> joke being that both are are about going down a river. Exactly. And, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> now you've gone too far, and it was, who knows what's going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. You get it. So so anyway, I was like, all right, uh, that's on this floppy disk, you know, and I can't get that either. Mm-hmm. Jim, what do you think? I looked around. I talked to Grant Kirkhope, um, who did Banjo Kazooie. Okay. I, I, I talked to Ben Prunty, who did FTL. I was trying to find the right person to do. I want you to take this and make it into something, you know, because I don't have the original. And it, eventually it was Jim based on his work on Indie Game, the movie and mm-hmm. Super Brothers Sword and Sorcery. Mm, yeah. Planet Coaster hadn't happened yet. I talked with him like a year before Planet Coaster ever occurred. But I said, hey, what do you think of turning, you know, starting with this little bit here or something like it? And we turn it into this four minute medley, taking melodies from throughout the entire Saves the Zoo soundtrack and oh, stringing wow. them together in your gorgeous style. And he said, uh, yeah, I think I can do that. <laughs> so that doesn't exist yet. That's my association with Jim. He's been wonderful. We've been in touch for some time now. And yeah, the light in us all is a wonderful example of what I now know he can do, but I had no idea he could do it at the time. (laughs) That's really cool. Well, let us listen to that. The light in us all from Planet Coaster.
next couple of tracks that you've requested mm. are uh, like the couple of tracks that we played earlier on in the show. Different takes on the same kind of theme. And uh, funnily enough, from games that bear the same name, but are many years Decades. apart from each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is, uh, this is uh, probably one of my very favorite tunes from uh, the original Doom, mm -hmm. 1993, by the wonderful Bobby Prince. I think maybe in George's podcast with uh, Leon, mm -hmm. he spoke of his friendship with Bobby. Because they're they're they go way back. Uh, they're they're really great. And suspense is the tune from E one M five, I believe, the fifth level. I really love it because it produces, in contrast to a lot of the other Doom music, of course, which is known for being more heavier hitting, mm -hmm. very outwardly masculine and uh, supercharged. Suspense builds this more horror vibe of mounting dread and suspense and i just love its melody i love you know i love all of doom and yes i also picked it because i happen to also deeply love its later iteration by by mick gordon yeah well we will hear that mick gordon piece in just a moment here but before that let us listen to suspense by bobby prince from the original version of doom
as we mentioned before, we played that track, uh, Mick Gordon, uh, who composed the stunning Doom 2016 soundtrack, created his own version, uh, not necessarily of like a note-for-note remake of, of that last song. He certainly... It's an original composition that incorporates a lot of elements of the previous one. But yeah, it definitely plays on that theme in the way that yeah. a few of those Doom themes are kind of cleverly and sneakily cooked into the new Doom exactly. soundtrack. Uh, I guess as best as they could without, uh, well, the original Doom soundtrack has some uh, controversy as far as whether or not certain metal tracks were covered without permission, maybe. <laughs> but yes. Well, which is, which is, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mm-hmm. think that's, that's become my theory because in a world of, you know, when, when Banjo-Kazooie is pressed to vinyl along with Earthworm Jim mm-hmm. and all this other stuff that's going on right now, I looked around and was like, why the hell, pardon the pun, um, <laughs> hasn't, hasn't Doom been pressed to vinyl or why, you know, why can't it be bought on iTunes or, or what mm-hmm. have you? And I think think that's probably the reason um i'd really like to talk to bobby and have a have a conversation about that because curator would love to put it out <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's a one of the most famous soundtracks of all mm-hmm. of video gaming i would say especially that um don't remember the name of it at doomsgate is it yes yes uh, e1m1 at doomsgate yeah. yes indeed <laughs> yeah that that very memorable iconic track I've seen a lot of comparison videos of this is the Doom track and this is the track that it was supposedly based on. And so I don't want to yes. don't want to make any accusations, but that might no. be the reason why it's having a harder time just distributing it in the, sure. the modern age. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the kind of challenge I love looking at actually as mm. curator is, okay, because what I'm really fascinated by in my personal life and in life in general is like, I love seeing the price tags for things. Mm-hmm. I, I love I, I love believing that everything is possible if you just throw enough like money and effort at something. <laughs> so it's uh-huh. like, you know, OK, how much would it cost? People are like, oh, you can't release the Doom soundtrack because it's it's lifted from other stuff. I'm like, all right. So how much would all those licenses cost mm. together? Get in contact you know? with Pantera and Black Sabbath and whoever. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like how much time <laughs> and money would that cost? Because that's that's what I'm here to do. Huh. Interesting. You know? And that's generally what, yeah, everyone else has said no to uh, for the longest time. And I, yeah, I'd love to be like, okay, I'll try it. Mm. See how far I get. Quick note on on the, mm. the soundtrack. Mick's work for, for Doom, of course, has been spoken about at great length. But I find myself returning to this track in particular. I've listened to it, you know, many times. A lot of the like super hard hitting, less melodic stuff is it's a bit much for me. Actually, it's <laughs> not you know, a metalhead then. Uh, not necessarily. Like I, I recognize the genius in what he's done, um, and and in his compositional methods, and like you know, he would like distort stuff using just mm-hmm. like just sheer amperage, you know, like like voltage into his machines and stuff. And um, I think he's brilliant. But authorization, Olivia Pierce is. I love it not just because it's an interpretation of suspense, but again the sense of mounting dread it gives without being atonal without being dissonant and particularly unpleasant it's basically very beautiful to listen to for the most part i think it kind of dances with atonality as the it does. Uh, there's this kind of like winding up of a distortion about halfway oh, through that's the track true. that uh, that's kind of true. almost separates the 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 to- the tune as if it was being kind of torn in half slowly that's a that's a really actually beautiful way to put it. Um, and you're right. I kind of I I 
I kind of had forgotten exactly what it sounded like. And I just listened to a tiny bit of it to refresh my memory. Um, yeah, it does. It has that mounting tension, I guess, in a way that I can handle rather than <laughs> like, you know, just jumping out the gate with, all right, these are a bunch of notes that don't go together. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, it's, it's got that, that progression and I, I, I absolutely love it. All right. Well, let us listen to all together now. <laughs> <laughs> Authorization Olivia Pierce by Mick Gordon from Doom 2016. not old enough to not like metal yet <laughs> <laughs> i said yeah well there's yeah there's a lot of things i'm not old enough to do and here i am doing it <laughs> there you go yeah <laughs> you're started, ahead of time i started curator as uh i was i think i had just turned 21 wow. yeah i had <laughs> yeah um and it was it was called cadmium audio at first oh. um because i was writing I was writing, I don't think I've ever shared this story. I was writing a superhero story at the time mm -hmm. in my, in my spare time uh, that I really loved. And I was trying to come up with, I was reading the Pulitzer prize winning novel, um, the adventures of Cavalier and clay. Have you ever heard of it? By any chance? Uh, no, it's not one that rings a bell for me. Oh, it's wonderful. Um, it's, it's about two young men, sort of analogs of the, the two Jewish boys who created uh, Superman in, in the 30s. Oh, okay. And it takes place across their entire lives throughout the early 20th century. They create a character together, comic book character, becomes very popular, called The Escapist. And The Escapist lives in a place called Empire City. And I thought that sounded really cool. And I wanted to come up with a location for, for my story. And my girlfriend at the time just sort of out of nowhere suggested, hey, how about Cadmium City? And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. 
so that wound up having meaning for me. I named my record label and I was like, what the heck am I going to call this? It was called like, first it was called Good Engine Sound Curators, hmm. which is a freaking huge mouthful. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and then it was Cadmium Sound Curators. And then it was just Cadmium Audio. And my rationalization for that at the time was Cadmium is the only element on the periodic table that has an acronym relating to the music industry, huh. CD. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, and then later on, I was like, that, I don't like it. It's too inexplicable. So curator, I realized, oh, well, that's, there's no record label called that. And that's exactly what I do. Hmm. So curator it is. Interesting. <laughs> you know, we went through this whole, um, there was this planned thing for the definitive soundtrack. Speaking of like going off the rails, have you mm -hmm. ever heard of a band called Pomplamoose? Uh, no, I don't think so. They're awesome. I recommend all your listeners check them out. They're a husband and wife duo who, first of all, Jack Conti, the husband, founded Patreon. Oh, really? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Later on, he, he did. But at first he was in a band called Pomplamoose and I was listening to their stuff and I was like, man, I think I want somebody to do a 2017 version of Welcome to the Zoo. So I actually got in touch with Natalie's lawyer, uh, the wife of the pair. Mm -hmm. Natalie's lawyer, we had like talks for like a month. And then Natalie was coming through Portland, my city, for a concert. I went to the concert and we had breakfast the next day. And I told them about, you know, what I wanted them to do. And, and uh, we had talks about it for some time. We were going to film this whole huge like live action music video at the San Diego Zoo. It was a whole thing. And then it just didn't work out due to like her scheduling. And she was, she was just awesome. She was, she was a really great connection. But that is one piece that was part of the like $240,000 goal. That's a very yeah, expensive yeah. thing to do. And it was part of this massive goal. And it turned out like the feedback I got was, yes, of course, that's a nice idea. It's not, come on, dude. Like it's not, it's not, it's not really what, what the people who want to hear this music are, are looking for exactly. Mm -hmm. So it, yeah, it was, it was good reality check with that. And not everyone in the audience had spent the last few years of their life completely obsessing about this one <laughs> exactly, game. Exactly. <laughs> well put. Yes, exactly. Most, some people just wanted to hear the soundtrack with maybe a couple added things. So I'm working on that. We're going to see how we can make that happen. Thanks to the will of the people. I, I would like to see this go through. And even this, this conversation has uh, got me much more uh, excited than I already was for the oh, prospect great. of what this can be. That's great. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, we, we custom designed, uh, I custom designed this um, with my manufacturing broker, this beautiful vinyl set. It's a quad gatefold. So it, it opens once and then it opens again. And I get really, as you might've noticed, sort of anal retentive about details and stuff. And <laughs> so I, you know, picked out the, the weights of the stock used for the, the gatefold. It's got a uh -huh. matte finish and this beautiful like UV spot gloss mm. uh, for certain details. And each one of the labels on each of the vinyls depicts a way one of the baby animals was saved. Okay. But in this very sort of hinty way. So it's just mm. like... Kenya's paws holding onto the rope as she climbs up the waterfall. Yeah. It's oh the really beautiful one is is just this tight close up of Putt Putt's antenna handing a little frozen snake a hot chocolate. <laughs> you know, but you don't see either of the characters, you just see the exchange. Yeah. And then the other one I really like is uh cheese squigglies being dumped out for <laughs> the mouse that's terrorizing Jumbo. But you don't see the mouse, you don't see Jumbo, you don't see Putt Putt, but you see the antenna and lore. And it's I just I love stuff like that. I love art where you can look at it for a moment as a fan and be mm. like, what is oh my wait a minute. Is that yeah, yeah. is that supposed to be Doc Brown's <laughs> lab? Or like, is that oh man, I think that's 
I had a really fun time translating this cartoony but beautiful children's game mm. into a boutique collector's product for adults. And I, I would love to see it see the light of day one day. Absolutely. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. That's that's really cool. And, you know, mm. of course, vinyl collections are, are, are very highly desired products these days, whether it's yes. you know, remasters of older albums or whether it's just a repressing of an old Beatles or Rush album or yeah. even the, I have my shipping confirmation that was just sent to me today of the big Weird Al Yankovic box set of oh, all of his beautiful. albums on vinyl as well. So, you know, it's, oh. it's out there. The, the zeitgeist is that you're hitting at this at just the right time. <laughs> exactly. Just the right time to exploit nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we spoke earlier in regards to the Doom soundtrack about soundtracks that aren't heard as they used to be because of uh possibly legal disputes and yeah. i think that uh that also kind of plays into this next piece of music that we're going to be hearing which has been removed from the game that it was composed for do you want to introduce this piece from super meat boy oh yes yes of course this is can assault which i believe is the third light world level from mm -hmm. super meat boy by danny baranowski really wonderful guy by the way congratulations danny he just got married a couple weeks ago oh um yeah he's he's i think he's doing awesome um and he's putting out a new album or something did i see Yes, yes, Danny B sides. Yeah, um, yeah, I just I just got the email about that the other day too, and I listened to the little preview track, and it just sounds like you know great Danny stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, say no more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, no, no, it is an interesting situation with the latest edition of Super Meat Boy. I believe they called it the fifth or sixth, and yeah, it must have been fifth, hmm. fifth anniversary edition. The game came out in 2010, and it was re released for PS. And maybe the Vita. Um, yeah, sounds right. Uh, yeah, in 2015. And yes, uh, Danny retained full ownership of his music, which means it was licensed, even though it was composed for the game, it was mm -hmm. licensed to Team Meat for the initial release. It was a huge part of the game's identity. Um, and then, you know, some things. <laughs> Who knows exactly what occurred, but professional and I believe just personal differences as Team Meat and Danny grew apart mm. uh, when he was later approached for relicensing it for this re-release, he decided to decline, which was fully within his rights that he had, you know, provided for himself. Um, I think that was very forward thinking on his part. But anyway, Danny, I chose him for this playlist uh, because he is also involved in Saves the Zoo. Um, he, oh, really? He was, he was like one of the first people I thought of because um, I loved, I have, uh, I have the Super Meat Boy soundtrack on CD on my shelf. It's one of the only CDs I own mm -hmm. in looking for replacements for the Penguin Boombox stuff. I, I heard, what happened was I heard Crypt of the Necrodancer and I thought, oh my God, you know, to have him in the mix for these penguin boombox arrangements i think it would be so much fun because he does such like danceable hard-hitting stuff and it would be very 
different, but I think I think it could gel into mm-hmm. the rest of what we have. So I reached out to him through his his manager at a label called Ghost Ramp, who are just about to put out the Hollow Knight soundtrack oh. on vinyl. Oh, that's an excellent soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, it was absolutely. They also put out, uh, or they're going to put out the Darkest Dungeon soundtrack on vinyl. Mm-hmm. They recently put out the Crypt of the Necrodancer soundtrack on vinyl itself. Uh, so they represent Danny, and mm-hmm. they were just awesome people. And so, yeah, we worked out that, hey, Danny, let's do Saves the Zoo. The other two gentlemen, we've got Jim doing the Secret Cove, and there's three Penguin Boombox tunes. So we've got Danny, and then we have two wonderful people from YouTube, uh, Ace Waters, who I recommend everybody checks out his channel. He does. He has a very particular sound, and he's he's wonderful. He is a remixer. And then... Carlos Ini. Oh yes, uh, insane in the rain music. Yeah, yeah, Good yeah. He's, he's he's great. We just talked on the phone a couple of days ago. Young fellow too. Gosh. <laughs> yeah, he's like he's. I think I don't even think he's twenty one yet. He's at the Berkeley School of Music on I think a very large scholarship, which he completely mm. deserves because yeah. he's absolutely brilliant. I've been listening to highly recommend his arrangement that just came out of Azalea Town mm. from Golden Pokemon Gold and Silver. Just magnificent. Anyway, he plays jazz. There's a tune. Uh, Penguin Boombox tune that features a saxophone prominently. So I said, hey, Carlos. <laughs> and of he course. Said, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Count me in. He said, it's, he said, it's funny. I actually like the tune. And I said, yeah, that's, I mean, I would hope. <laughs> you know? um, so that, yeah, they're the lineup. And Danny, on melody, I felt like this track contributed well to the conversation I wanted to have around melody because I love the translation of melodies. I love basically hummable melodies, you know? And Danny cracks that in half to me. Like he mm. he comes up with this stuff where it's like, where did you where did you get this melody that goes in like 18 different directions and like all around? It's very, very difficult to hum along with one of his tracks. Mm. Yeah. Because it just goes all over the place. But it's very pleasant. It's awesome to listen to. It is, I believe, unarguably melodic mm-hmm. and very high energy. And I, I and he never, he never like reuses melodies. He doesn't do themes. You know, he, he just does this one, here we go, out the gate, this whole big thing that goes all over the place. And then that's the only time you're going to hear that. <laughs> and then, and then we're going to do something totally different over here. And so when you've got the breadth of a soundtrack like Super Meat Boy, which it has like 60 tracks in it or something, I'm just amazed at how much different stuff he pulls off mm. under a single project. Likewise, yeah. with Crypt and the Necrodancer. It's just so cool. So that's why I picked him here. Very cool. This is Can O Salt by Danny Baranowski.
we have one track left to listen to today, but before we listen to that, remember you can venture over to our forum at caneandrinse.com forum, or get in touch with us on Twitter at caneandrinse, and you can request uh, your own favorite tracks to be played in future Sounds of Play, and we will do just that. Please do subscribe to Sound of Play and our main podcast, Kane and Rinse, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. I realize it's not called iTunes anymore, but... Gosh darn it, I'm just a little old-fashioned, I suppose. <laughs> I would like to thank uh, both George and Timothy for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to talk for a very long time now <laughs> about <laughs> music curation and about music preservation and uh, a few kind of uh, industry behind-the-scenes stories as well. It's always a joy to hear. <laughs> oh, it's it's been a huge pleasure to be here, Ryan. Thanks, thanks for having me. <laughs> to me, you know, just going back to... Uh, going back to the original conversation that we had about, uh, you know, Timothy saying that I made him uh, jump through hoops uh, mm-hmm. to show that he was serious. It was a little different in my memory that uh, really the way I see it is that I had tried very hard uh, to move forward with having, getting the ability to put out a soundtrack for Puppet Saves the Zoo. I had tried it several times over a lot of years. Uh, I'd had a lot of serious conversations and Timothy really felt that he could do it. Mm. And I wanted to show him where the big rocks in that river were mm-hmm. and let him know that, you know, that his, his ve- this vehicle is not going to get down the river until you take that, that rock out and, yeah. and lower the bridge from the other side so that you can rescue the giraffe. <laughs> uh, so, so, um, so what I want to say is that uh, Timothy is so uh, sensitive to the music, so dedicated to uh, the curation of, of game audio. He's so talented uh, with his ability to communicate. He's so organized and ambitious. Mm-hmm. And his vision, while huge, is not dumb huge. It's it's mm-hmm. fun huge. Let's call it hilarious huge. It's playing <laughs> in the fireworks factory huge. It's humongous, you could say. It's humongous. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just want to go on record as saying that, that this is why I like working with this guy. And this is why mm-hmm. I think... I have, I have total faith that what he puts out is going to be really, really beautiful. I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, what ears it lands on and, and, and seeing uh, who's lucky enough and wise enough to, to latch on to this thing, you know, to find it themselves and who's going to spread the word. And what is the thing actually going to be in the end? And I hope, you know, I hope everyone sticks around to find out. It's a really good note to bring up this kind of final question before we play our last track of the day. I wanted to kind of give a platform to this Putt Putt Saves the Zoo definitive soundtrack that you guys are, mm. are putting together and working so hard to curate and mm. uh, to finally kind of get out into the world, let, let people hear it for the first time. So I'm, uh, yeah, I just, I know it's been a journey over the past month or so especially after it's gone public but it was on kickstarter for a while and then i think that you you, you guys are taking kind of a a different route now but i i just want to kind of get the the story there and, and to try to give people a an actionable place where they can um learn more about this if it's a project that interests them well perfect let, let me let me let me briefly set it up and let timothy knock it down <laughs> uh, I, don't, I, I, I don't like to live in the past. I'm, I'm moving forward. I got, uh, you know, but I've done a lot of things in game audio that I've really enjoyed. Putt Putt Saves the Zoo represents uh, not just a peak in my work and the team's work. It represents a peak in my life, mm-hmm. uh, a time that I really treasured and that I look back on sometimes and watch like it's uh, an episode of The Monkeys 
or like it's a Beatles movie. Um, it was great, great times. That's something precious. And, and I just feel like Timothy is going to be able to wrap that. It has so far proven that he can wrap that up in a way that can give people access to that. And uh, Timothy, how are people going to get access to that? What's it going to be? I, I, I hand it over to him. I give him the steering wheel. Curating. <laughs> curating that part of my life well i'm i am not entirely a certain yet um i i would love to just footnote real quick while, while you're here george uh, how much really an, an honor is an understatement to say how, how much of an honor and a pleasure it's been to work with you and to be afforded this opportunity um because ryan truly when when he gave me over this stuff i he didn't know me from anybody i was just i sent him an email on a contact form in his site and it's been the trust he's had with me and uh, the willingness to communicate and get to know me and, and see what I wanted to do has been just tremendous um, and has made Curator possible and uh, Curator's mission. Because really w what I'm interested in doing is shining a light on artists we've all enjoyed but have never known the names of. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, necessarily. Not, like we never, so many people love Welcome to the Zoo and and know very little about who produced it, you know? And so getting to sort of form a bridge there and also preservation through distribution. You know, what better way to memorialize something than to make sure everyone who wants it has it? That's really what Curator has been about. So how the soundtrack will wind up in people's hands. It's been a real struggle. Something I haven't touched on is just a lot of what's difficult about what Curator does. Uh, and the reason the Puppet Saves the Zoo soundtrack wasn't released, like, like George alluded to, before I came along, was that it's a tremendous amount of work to get rights holders um, and composers uh, and everybody agreed on how a product like this should come out. It's a huge challenge. And I agree with George's sentiment that he was interested in letting me know kind of how difficult this might be because I had no idea at the time and more than ever I, I do now. So we had a little Kickstarter effort. It was actually a huge Kickstarter effort. It was a quarter of a million. It was a, it was a quarter of a million dollar goal. It was, it was pretty ridiculous. And it spoke to a certain I had been working on this in isolation for so many years. We were going to mm -hmm. get enough money from this Kickstarter to be able to buy Kickstarter itself. <laughs> <laughs> it was going to be, yeah, it was going to be really big. So, so I, I, you know, I put it out there. I got a bunch of feedback really quickly that I really appreciated. And I said, okay, all right, I need to turn around and look at this in a different way. Uh, one of the things that, that one of the feedback points that I got was it was important to people to have it fully licensed with the intellectual property holders. We try to have a conversation with them for about three years and it just kind of spun in circles. It was difficult for a lot of different reasons. And eventually what I decided was, okay, I got to get this out into the world. George owns his music. We can do that. We just can't use imagery based on our conversations with the rights holders. We can't use imagery of Putt-Putt himself. And that was, uh, that was something people really did want to see. And they were uncomfortable with uh, it not being there. So the actionable item, to answer your question, for people who are interested in Curator and particularly Puppet Saves the Zoo soundtrack, go to our website, curator.audio. Our website. I got to get out of that habit. My website. I'm curator. Uh, I've used the royal we for so long, and I really Some, someday you'll be fully schizophrenic, and then you can. Because <laughs> <laughs> if I do this work for long enough, go to go to the website. You can uh, you sign up for my newsletter there, which will let you know about big things that come along. Uh, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. Um, us, there it is again. Uh, you can subscribe to me on YouTube, where I'll be uploading stuff like uh, that playthrough in five parts with with Jason and Lori mm -hmm. playing through. Um, 
Twitter is probably the place I'm most active at look for curator at the moment. Now, is that at look for curator or just at curator? It's at look for curator. Okay, cool. Because curator so was to, taken. Uh, okay. Wanted to make sure. <laughs> of course. Um, we're on Facebook as well. And yeah, if you, if you, Google Put Put Saves the Zoo definitive soundtrack. You'll find us. Uh, you'll find me. Um, <laughs> and I, I just recommend and, and George. Um, and I just recommend keeping your ear to whatever social media is is your yeah your preferred method. Um, mm. And you know you'll just get to hear about what the heck we get up to. And yeah, we've got some. <laughs> I've got some uh, really cool other projects that I've I've gotten to work with a little bit. Yeah, stuff like Lego Island, Chex Quest. I hope to approach Doom. Just I'm always looking for okay, master recordings, beautiful music. Anything that I can't track, he's attracted to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it gives me work. If he doesn't know where it is, I'm like, all right. Do you know if it exists? And he says yes. I'm like, all right. Give me my plane ticket. I'm gonna go find it. We'll get it on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. Well, it's it's a good mm. mission. The preservation of games themselves has been a really hot topic over the past few years yeah. as uh, a lot of old systems don't work the way that they used to anymore as a lot of mm -hmm. uh, battery packs are dying in old cartridges and and causing them to not perform the same way that they would have if they were fresh out of the box. Uh, a lot of the impermanence of games themselves has been on the forefront of, of some really great preservationists mind at, at yeah. minds as they've uh, made huge efforts to try to overcome the impermanence of the, the medium. And yeah. so this is the first that I've really encountered people that are going into preserving the game audio specifically and mm. probably in a better form than it would have even been appreciated uh, on the original systems. And so it's a, a cool mission, definitely something that I want to follow up on. And I hope that, uh, well, I know that our listeners are interested in video game music. And so certainly <laughs> they have an interest yeah. in this as well. <laughs> I, I look forward to hearing from any of them who have suggestions as to projects, you know, curator could go after in the future. It'd be really fun. Well, you got Chex Quest already. So that's pretty much everything that I played exactly. as a kid between, <laughs> between Putt-Putt and Chex Quest. The <laughs> efforts to, to preserve uh, video games, there's a lot of them going on. My favorite happens to be the UT, University of Texas one. Uh, and if people look up the University of Texas video game archive, uh, they'll see some really interesting things. Actually, specifically, if they look at the George Sanger papers, they'll find this <laughs> long table of contents of all the junk that used to clutter my uh, studios that's now uh, being preserved. Uh, but I just think that what uh, Curator, he just fits really well into those efforts. So uh, it, it will be fun to hear from your listeners, from our listeners, you know, what are their favorite efforts uh, that are afoot to preserve games? I just saw uh, on Facebook, actually, uh, this evening that uh, my friend Billy Joe Kane in Texas is donating his uh, stand-up, his Defender machines and other machines to uh, to museums. I think it's uh, yeah, he's, he's just sending them to the video game National Video Game Museum in Frisco, Texas. Mm. So that kind of thing's going on all the time, and I just think that uh, it, it's great to be a part of it. It's great to see that Timothy's a part of it. It's great to see uh, your listeners become a part of it. And uh, with that, I'll say, uh, video games forever. It's <laughs> not just a fad. <laughs> thanks george yeah thanks for joining us it's been a genuine pleasure talking to you as uh somebody who's enjoyed your work for a very long time <laughs> thanks thanks it's it's a big day 
Before we leave everyone for today, we have one final track that we would like to play. And this is a, uh, a triumphant track, so to speak. One that, <laughs> one that speaks to the American spirit, whatever that means anymore. <laughs> this is a track from Civilization VI. And uh, why don't you uh, tell us what you like about this song? About Civilization VI is a soundtrack that just blew me away. They use this full orchestra to interpret folk songs from each of the civilizations represented in the Mm -hmm. game, first in a very primitive fashion, and then um, moving up through the industrial era into a imagined atomic era in the future. And the industrial era is often where the full orchestra is introduced and sort of the full majesty of this very, very simple melody um, is played with and orchestrated around. And America, uh, the tune for it, is based on uh, May Hard Times Come Again No More, which I actually think is a beautiful statement of what perhaps the most beautiful interpretation of the American spirit could be. Mm. So it's it's moving, it's magnificent, it's technically wonderful, and uh, I'm delighted to get to end the podcast on this note. Yes, of course. This is America, the Industrial Era by Jeff Knorr and Roland Rizzo. Thank you for joining us. We will catch you again next week or this week, depending on when this is released. <laughs>